Blaise Pascal is a famous philosopher and mathematician from a few hundred years ago. He wrote this, all men seek happiness. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Pascal was not the first to note that seeking pleasure is hardwired into human nature. Paul knew this truth and used it to explain to husbands how to love your wives. He said, love your wife as you already love your own body, nourishing and caring for it, for no one hates his own flesh. And in Psalm 63, God motivates you to seek hard after him by the exact same means. Look at verse 5. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My lips shall praise you with my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. God appeals to your desire for happiness, laying out before you the all-surpassing satisfaction of knowing Him. In Psalm 63, the question asked is not, it is not, will you seek happiness? That's a given. The question Psalm 63 asks of you is, where will you turn for joy? What will capture your imagination? Will it be the pleasures of knowing God and all that He is for us in Jesus Christ? Or will you look for delight elsewhere? Elsewhere in things which by their very nature will blunt your desires for God. In speaking of this desire for happiness by which God motivates us to passionately Pursue him in a quotation that Elder Swab has already referenced. C.S. Lewis wrote, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. So if people think it's a bad thing to desire good and to hope for enjoying life, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is a key theme in Dr. John Piper's work and writings 
commenting on this very quotation, John Piper writes, that's it. The enemy of worship is not that your desire for pleasure is too strong. It is that you do not desire pleasure enough. It is too weak. We have settled for a home, a family, a few jobs, a few, a few jobs, a few friends, a job, a television. Some of you may be working multiple jobs just trying to make yourself happy. Is it working? See, Piper's right. A microwave oven, an occasional night out, a yearly vacation. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Perhaps a new personal computer. Woo! Now he's gotten meddling with you. I'm not going to even mention iPods. I'm not going to mention those. Just want you to know that. We have accustomed ourselves to such meager, short-lived pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled and our worship has shriveled. Friends, there is an ever-present danger of seeking to satisfy elsewhere what was made and meant for God alone. I need Psalm 63 because I need my Passion for God stirred and I need my soul sensitized to the fact that it can only find its pleasure in him. Today, Lord willing, we will have an overview of Psalm 63 in August. Pastor Kaiser will be uh, in another country and I'm scheduled to preach for three weeks in a row. And my hope then is to return and go more verse by verse through this psalm and see in particular the glories of thirsting deeply for God. But today I want to do a flyby, an overview, because I only have one isolated week to preach, and I thought it better to just present to you the main idea. Here it is. This psalm teaches us that satisfying our soul with God necessitates cultivating an ever-deepening thirst for God. Satisfying our soul with God necessitates cultivating an ever-deeper thirst for God. That's what Psalm 63 teaches. In order to show you that, let me ask that we note four things. Four things about thirsting for God. First, notice that thirsting for God can never be too deep. Look at verse 1 again. Oh God... You are my God early, or in some translations, the Hebrew could be rendered earnestly, will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. When I first became a Christian, I was working as an engineer in a biomedical firm designing uh, orthopedic implants when I became a believer. And one of the older men pulled me aside, and he wanted to give me some insight. And here was his insight. He said, Durham, religion is good. God knows you needed some, but don't get carried away with it. Too much is bad. You've got to stay balanced. There are religious kooks out there. Now, Bill, and that was not his name, but Bill could not put it in these words. But here's what Bill was saying. A thirst for God can be too deep, it can be too serious, 
It can be too consuming and you best stay away from that or before you know it, your thinking and your behavior will be controlled by your passion for God. I bet some of you agree with that today. There's an old saying, she is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Is that your perspective? It was certainly not David's. When he wrote Psalm 63, he is far away from the place of God's special presence. He has been driven out into the wilderness. But in spite of this very physical separation from the place where worship was to happen, this very physical separation from God's presence in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary, what does he do? He rises early to earnestly seek after God. He recognizes that his soul thirsts for God and he wants to encourage that. See, for David, the desire to know God can never dive too deep. In fact, verse 2 says, base, or is it verse 3? Verse 3, the first part of it, your loving kindness is better than life. I would rather die than not know your fellowship. And remember, this is the man, this is the king who embarrassed himself and especially his wife because he danced raised his arms and danced out in the middle of the streets as he worshipped God. Maybe some of you here today are embarrassed even to sing in church, much less speak with affection and love for the friendship that you have with Jesus or that you could have with Him. Not David. His lips praise God as he dances and sings for joy. I really like chocolate. I mean, I really like chocolate. But I found this. Gorging on chocolate can make me sick. Now, I haven't been able to teach my kids that. They'll gorge every day of the week if they can. But the same is not true of God. True possession of God is different than true possession of chocolate because the more of God you possess... It only increases both your satisfaction in Him and your desire for Him. The more grace that you experience, you will become more and more satisfied, as the psalm promises, and you will also want to possess more of it so you can be more satisfied. Why is it so different for chocolate than it is for God? It's this. You were made for God. Believe it or not, we were not made for fudge. I know it's hard for me to believe too, but we were not. Augustine, the great African Christian thinker of the fourth century, wrote this prayer to God. You awake us to delight in your praise. For you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You need to know that the Bible calls, calls its central message the gospel. Gospel is another word that means good news. Why is it good news? Here's the reason. It is good news. It is the good news that you can reject 
the soul-deadening lie that too much of God is dangerous. It is the good news that you can reject the soul-deadening lie that too much of God is dangerous. You can drink deeply and unendingly at the fountain of God's grace. That's why the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Delight yourself in Him. He is the one for whom your soul thirsts. And because of what Jesus has done in reconciling people back to God, you can now love God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Fear not, little ones, as Jesus said it. Fear not, for the fountain of God's favor will never run dry. The more you thirst, the deeper will be your enjoyment of his streams of grace. That's exactly why Jesus said to you, whoever drinks of the water I give will never thirst. The water I give will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. So let us do with David. Let us early and earnestly seek God, thirsting deeply for his presence and grace because no thirst is too deep for him to satisfy. Then second, second thing I would ask you to notice is that thirst for God can be deepened. No thirst for God is ever too deep, and thirst for God can be deepened. Look at verses 2 to 4. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. As I mentioned, David is out in the wilderness. He has been driven there by his own son, Absalom, who wants to murder his father and steal from him the throne. So what do you do when you're in that situation? When your own son is trying to kill you? David spends his time stirring up his passion for God. See, David remembers the past joy of worshiping God in the sanctuary and he anticipates the future joy of returning to public worship. So here we have an example where the man who is called by the Bible, the man after God's own heart, is not doing what we would be doing. He is not sitting around fretting over how he's going to escape this difficult situation. He's not all, as we would say in our day and age, stressed out because he's got problems. He's got just a tough and difficult life. He does not even spend his time focusing on asking God for strength needed to survive this trying time. What is David doing? David is intentionally deepening his thirst. Listen, for that which he cannot have. He cannot get to the sanctuary. Absalom guards the way. He cannot return to Jerusalem right now. But he's going to spend his time deepening his thirst for God-centered worship. Matthew Henry, a pastor from an earlier time, said this, All the straits and difficulties of a wilderness must not put us out of tune for sacred songs. But even then, it is our duty and interest to keep up a cheerful communion with God 
See, in the gospel, Jesus comes to us and says, whatever thirst you have, I'm going to satisfy with living water. Well, if that's true, and you believe Jesus, then the one thing you're going to want is a deeper thirst. The deeper your thirst, the more satisfaction which will come. And that's why C.S. Lewis said, the Lord finds our pleasures not too strong, but too weak. We're far too easily pleased. God aims to make you thirst for Him like a dry land where there's nothing but desert and sand. If you've ever been on the ocean front and take a bucket of water from the ocean and pour it on the sand, it slurps it in. There's never enough of it. God says, you can be that way so that all of my grace is absorbed by you and the floodgates of my grace can be poured on you. But only if you will deepen your thirst for them. John Collins, professor of Old Testament at the our denominational seminary covenant, said, David has put these words into our mouths for us to sing to God, to teach us to lift our sights higher than getting out of this or just getting through it. He wants to lift our sights to the things that matter most, the highest privilege a mortal can enjoy, the worship of God, and to yearn for it. I think, or at least it seems to me, that one of the hindrances we have is our fear that God might not come through for us. I find people begin to get a little anxious when they just start to think about maybe fixing to be turning off the television or closing the internet browser or shutting out the distractions and shutting off the diversions. Just like Elder Swab said as he brought us into worship today, for the Christian to long for God, there must be some time of silence. And yet, every study that's ever been done says that Americans can't stand any silence. We have to have music in our elevators so that we don't have an awkward moment of silence. We even have music on our computers lest while we're typing there be a moment of silence. I think this is exactly the main point of God's dealing with the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a great man who did great things for God and he got so overwhelmed by it he began to think God might not come through anymore and so he went and hid in a cave And the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go out on the mountain. And a great strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks into pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire was a still, small voice. God met with Elijah in the quiet. And maybe some of us like distractions so much because we do not yet trust God to meet with us if all of the distractions are eliminated. 
See, the Bible says our thirst for God can be deepened, but maybe we're afraid of Him, not show, His not showing up. Maybe we are afraid to do so. And that brings us to the third point. A thirst for God can be distracted. It can be distracted. And really, I see that in the exact same verses, verses 2 to 4. The same verses which teach us how to deepen our thirst for God can be turned against us because if you do not do them or if you do the opposite of them, if you refuse to meditate on the past joy of worshiping God, you refuse to anticipate the future joy of returning to public worship, you can distract your thirst for Him. Even though the thirst is there in your soul, you can distract it so you no longer feel it and so it no longer drives you. Pastor Charles Bridges said, All that we could add from the world would only make us poorer. All that you can add from the world only makes you more poor by diminishing your enjoyment of God. And if you lose that, there's no compensation. You cannot get it back. Maybe some of us have been far too easily pleased in relation to Psalm 63, I think this is exactly the terror of what it means to be a fallen creature living in a fallen world. We're fallen creatures. When the Bible says we are fallen creatures, what it means is that because we naturally love sin, we are more than willing to seek other pleasures to distract us from the longing that is within our soul to know God. We, we feel that longing to begin to well up, and we don't like it. We don't yet believe the gospel. We do not believe that God will meet with us. We do not believe He will come through. We do not believe that the deeper is our thirst, the greater will be our satisfaction. So what do we do? We're willing to run after all kinds of things so that we don't have to feel the longing of our souls. And it's not just that we, live, that we are fallen creatures. We live in a fallen world. And the fact that we live in a fallen world means that everything around us will deaden our thirst for God the more we seek satisfaction in anything other than God. That's what Bridges is saying. All the things you add from the world will only make you poorer. A world which deadens our desires for God the more we seek satisfaction in anything other than God. You see, the world can never satisfy your soul. Get it all. Go ahead. More power to you. You and Solomon, you get every bit of it. And when you're done, your soul will be just, in fact, it will be more bare, dry, and barren than it was when you began. Because you cannot put the world into the hole which is in your soul. That's why First John says, do not love the world or, or the things in it. Because if you love the world, the love for the Father will not be in you. You cannot have them both. We're going to expand on this idea over the next weeks or when we get to it in August, Lord willing. Let me give two practical examples, though, of how a thirst for God can be distracted. I think maybe this will give you something to think about and meditate on and begin to work down into your own life. The first one is from another pastor so that you can, can see that I struggle with this just as much, maybe more than you do. David Hansen, who wrote a book, The Art of Pastoring, 
after explaining the essential place of beginning every day in prayer, wrote this, but I am not very good at morning prayer. First thing in the morning, morning prayer does not seem very important. Reading the sports page, now that seems important. Listening to the morning news seems very important. Anything can capture my attention when it's time for morning prayer. The propaganda on the box of cold cereal will do just fine. But, and then here's an important point. Neglect of morning prayer is not caused by distractions. Distractibility is a symptom of something deeper inside of me that is the problem. It's an infection, and the infection in me is my desire not to be set apart from ministry, not to be directed by the Spirit, not to be empowered by God. My sinful desire is to swerve from the way of the cross, to set myself apart, to set my own agenda, to gather power from other sources. My refusal to pray is the old Adam inside me kicking against the sanctifying work of the Word and the Spirit. I agree with David Hansen. I feel every day the desire of my, excuse me, my flesh to distract my soul's thirst for God. Here's another example. One for all of us, not just me. Chris Lundgaard. Which is easier, to sit with a bucket of butter-soaked popcorn and watch Tom Cruise on the big screen for two hours or kneel and pray for five minutes? Tom Cruise wins hands down because there is literally no competition. What the flesh hates is God, so it resists anything that smacks of God, especially communion with Him. The flesh can curl up by your side and watch mindless movies all night long, but let even the barest thought of meditations flutter into your mind and the flesh goes to red alert. Your eyes sag in sleepiness and your mind remembers a thousand distractions. Well, whatever the means for you, whatever the reason, this text, Psalm 63, demands of us that we discern where our thirst for God has been distracted. Find out what distraction is pulling you away so you're not getting to the thirst Because if you do not get to the thirst, you will not drink deeply of His grace. One final point to note. Thirst for God can be satisfied. That's in verses 5 to 8. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. These are very encouraging promises. And though we may be afraid that God will not come through, here God reminds us that the still, small voice is always there underneath the din of of those distractions, if we will have faith in God to remove those and to seek Him, we will always find Him and we will always find our souls filled.
Jesus said, the work of God is to believe. It is to believe the one whom God has sent. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus promises you all who come to him will be satisfied. And how do you know that you can trust his word? We've seen it already here at the Lord's table. Because he suffered once for sins to bring us back to God. 1 Peter 3.8 His life and his death bring his people into the delight of intimacy with him. Will you not come to Jesus and be fed? Will you not come to Jesus and be fed? There's one further application we can make under this point. If this psalm is true, will you not covenant with God to allow your thirst to be deepened? Will you not seek to deepen your thirst for God? The other day I was out walking and trying to pray and the thought came into my mind, what is my purpose in life? And instantly I knew my purpose in life was to lose weight. And then I thought, you know, that's, that couldn't be it. But boy, it feels that way. You know, I used to go on a diet and lose weight. And now I go on a diet and exercise and eat less all the time so that I don't gain weight. Somehow, I've made this transition to an age where I have to not diet, but I have to make substantial and permanent changes in my eating habits. I have found out through, this will help you, I found out through scientific analysis that I cannot lose weight and eat fudge every day. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out. You don't have to learn that on your own. You know, what I found out is that I just about have to eliminate desserts and I have to work all the time at trying to keep the weight off. But in doing so, I found out something else interesting. I found out that when I eat less chocolate, when I cultivate a desire for it, it actually tastes better when we eat it. The other day we took out the Kaisers to, for our little pastor appreciation dinner, took them to Vivace's, and man, did they have a good dessert. Let me just tell you, when you haven't had dessert for a week or a month or a year, go to Vivace's, they have this chocolate thing over the sauce. Woo! Hallelujah. That was, it was close to heaven. When we cultivate desire, the enjoyment increases. Now, all analogies fall apart at some, way, some place, and this one is no exception because you cultivate a desire for dessert by having less of it, and you do not cultivate a desire for God by having less frequent communion with Him. But in this way, it is the same. Here's the, here's the way it is the same. By actively deepening your thirst for God, you will find yourself enjoying more His power and His glory. If you will actively cultivate, actively deepen your thirst for God, you will find yourself enjoying more His power and His glory. We will, Lord willing, probe the details of how to do that over uh, in August. But for now, note this, that enjoying His favor and power and glory is what your soul was made for. 
Will you not love your own soul and seek to deepen your thirst for God? Some of you know Yogi Berra was a catcher for the New York Yankees, a very famous catcher. One time he was behind the plate when Hank Aaron came up to bat. And Yogi Berra, one of the things he was famous for is his chatter. He would talk incessantly while the batter was there. And of course part of that was to encourage his own teammates, but the real reason was to distract the batter. And if any of you do not know, Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record, one of the greatest home run hitters. Uh, I guess the greatest home run hitter without an asterisk by his name uh, since he didn't have any steroids. Anyway, Hank Aaron came up to the plate, and Yogi Berra's back there just running his mouth full steam ahead. And uh, Hank Aaron gets up there with the bat, and uh, as, he, as he gets ready for the pitch, gets ready for the swing, Yogi Berra says, Hey, Hank, you got that bat upside down. You need to turn it so that you can read the trademark. You can't read the trademark. You're going to mess up your bat. You've got to read the trademark. And about then the pitch came in, and Hank Aaron just slammed it over the center field fence. And he ran around the bases, and as he touched home plate, he got up in Yogi Berra's face and said, I didn't come here to read. <laughs> See, Hank Aaron knew what he wanted, and he would not be distracted. And I can tell you, though you are easily distracted, the Bible tells you what your soul wants. And you've got to decide whether you're going to listen to what God says. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Are you going to be distracted by the Yogi Berras? Or are you going to get busy for that for which you were made, fellowship and intimacy with God? Father, your mercy is new every morning, and we see your mercy this morning in the fact that you are willing to teach us again that very thing for which we were made. We ought to know it. We've been told it before, and yet we do forget. We are forgetful people. We are people easily distracted. We are people, in fact, Lord, who like to be distracted. Forgive us. Forgive us, even as you have forgiven us in teaching us again this morning that... The deeper is our longing for you, the greater will be our joy in having it fulfilled. But as you forgive us, give us faith to set aside the sins and distractions which so easily and thoroughly and quickly entangle us and cause us to find our soul's delight in you and your mercy and your kindness which are all given to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen.